Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. She said that in 1994, and our trends on loneliness in our culture have only increased exponentially since then. In 2018, a study was done that found 22% of adults in the U.S. always or often feel lonely. If you go over the age of 45, that number becomes 33%. Over the age of 60, 43% of adults are always or often lonely. Those are staggering numbers. And this is one of the few things those on the political left and the political right agree on. There are very few things, but one thing is we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness in the U.S. So our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy served under the Obama administration and now under President Biden wrote this as a doctor. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. Conservatives Yunal Levin and Tim Carney have both written entire books on how we are fracturing into loneliness as a culture. So pretty much everyone agrees loneliness is a huge problem in our current moment. So why does that matter for you and I on a Sunday morning in church? Because you cannot change, you cannot become like Jesus without a community of Christians committed to you. We're in a series called uh, The Easy Yoke, and the whole series has been if, if you become a Christian, if you become a student, an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, your, your life becomes oriented around three goals. To abide with Jesus, to train with Jesus, so that you can live like Jesus. You can easily and automatically and routinely do what he would do if he was living your life. But that is really difficult to do by just trying harder. Just go try to be like Jesus this week. It's really hard to do. So what you need is is other things that subtly and slowly form you into the person who is that kind of person. And one of the most crucial things that forms you into someone like Jesus is a community of Christians committed to you, committed to your good. But you and I are are living in a time where we're leaving community and embracing loneliness. And I see these trends just as present in the church today as I do outside of the church. So I want to break down our time together in three points. First, how, are we, how we are being discipled into loneliness. Our culture has a formational uh, track to make you into a lonely person. I want to describe that to us. Second, what community in the yoke of Jesus requires. And then third, how community changes us. 
So first, how are we are being discipled into loneliness? But before I get into the cultural trend, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 10. I'm going to read verses 1 and 4, 1 through 4, which are a incredible interesting look at the community Jesus surrounded himself with when he walked the earth. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's a few things about this community that's, I think, important to name. First is, is Jesus himself surrounded himself with intentional relationships throughout his ministry and life. The same 13 people, Jesus and his 12 disciples, and it's clear that group was larger, included many women as well as you read through the Gospels. But this core group of people was Jesus' intentional community surrounding him in his ministry. So if Jesus had 12 people he surrounded himself with, you probably need something similar. The second thing that's interesting about this community is it's full of people who should not be in community with together. You have two sets of brothers. Right? Like I, I have uh, three boys in my house, and it feels like half of the words spoken are... Mom, followed by some grievance their brother has just committed against them, most likely because they just committed the same grievance against their brother. But I digress. The two brothers are in this community. Jesus invites someone he knows will betray him into the community and even lets him be in charge of the money. I mean, that, think about that for a minute. Or don't. And then the, the most important pair we're told Matthew the tax collector is a disciple and Simon the zealot. Now tax collectors, Matthew, uh, they were uh, tax collectors. They collected tax from Rome and were hated by the Jewish people because they became very wealthy by taking taxes from other people. So they were despised within the Jewish community. Zealots hated Rome so much, many of them endorsed violence against Rome to free the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. So in Bible study together is a guy who represents Rome and all of its power and a guy who wants to violently overthrow Matthew. And I'm not naive. Like I, I don't think that those Bible studies or those conversations went from Matthew to Simon uh, Simon, I know we disagree on many things, but I'd really love to hear your heart about how you understand this passage in Leviticus. And Simon responded, you know, Matthew, no, I, I really want to hear what you think because you just have so much more experience and wisdom in life than I do. So why don't you tell me how you're viewing this as, as a Roman leader? No, they probably fought. And you see this, if you read through the Gospels, the disciples rarely are not fighting or misunderstanding Jesus. And yet Jesus is surrounded with them in 
community. It, it would almost be like uh, Kevin Earhart leads a Wednesday night Bible study with the guys here. Imagine this Wednesday night, one guy ro- rolls in with a red Make America Great Again hat on, and someone else rolls in with a uh, Joe Biden is my hero or whatever his t-shirts say, and he walks in, and then they sit down next to one another. I can tell you, as a pastor who's tried to pastor in this political environment, that is almost impossible today. And yet our disagreements are far less than a tax collector and a zealot were. And here they are, chosen by Jesus to be in his community. So why is that not happening in our day? Well, there's lots of reasons for that, but there's two trends in our culture that I think are driving that, our separation into loneliness more than any other. And the first trend is hurting. We are gravitating towards people who already agree with us. And whenever someone disagrees with us, rather than having curiosity to understand why they disagree with us, we remove ourselves from their community. And so our circle of people gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we're with the only people that agree with us 100%, which is ourselves. We're alone. And what's accelerating that trend is the internet. It's easy for you to be more connected to people online who agree with you strongly than it is with other Christians in this room who probably disagree with you on something very important. Sherry Turkle noticed this trend in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, about how we were withdrawing from physical relationships to online connections. And here's what she wrote about that. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network lives allows us to hide from each other. We would rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then easy connections become redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. And to illustrate this, my last church in Kansas City, we had a leader who just withdrew from all of the things he was involved in, Bible studies, leadership activities. And then I noticed through social media He was very engaged online with another church in their Bible studies. And I noticed their church agreed with his politics right, left, center, all the way down. He withdrew from physical community to be more connected with people he will never see other than on a screen. And this is happening in in lots of different ways. We spend a lot of time online reading people we agree with and much less time sitting across from someone who's a real human being who might see the world differently than us. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to be in a relationship with another person. It's very difficult. They have their own opinions. And even when you present your ironclad case of how you're right, they still don't agree with you. Sometimes they're demanding. They have needs that are overwhelming for you to try to meet. Sometimes they say things that are really offensive and you have to forgive or, or love them through that moment. That's all hard. It's easier for me just to to read online what I already think and agree with. And so we're, we're moving that direction, and the cost is loneliness. We're more lonely. That's the first trend. The second trend is consumerism. That our culture disciples us into pursuing whatever is cheapest, 
easiest and at least personal cost to myself. Our culture disciples us into becoming people who pursue what is cheapest, cheapest, easiest, and whatever is least personal cost to myself. Now, this is great for buying socks. This is a terrible way to have community or to be in a church. And so Mark Sayers writes this about the current expression of much of Christianity in the West in his book, Disappearing Church. He writes, consumer Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity that compromises the cross with self, mixing the worship of God with the worship of options, personal autonomy, low commitments, and opinions over responsibility. I'm just unpack that. Consumer Christianity is the worship of options. Right? We prioritize options, so we remain low committed to those around us, waiting to see if something better will come along. It's the worship of personal autonomy. We want freedom. Freedom from uh, other people and their demands. Freedom of, of things we don't like. Freedom away from things we disagree with. But community requires commitment to other people to their priorities, to what they need in order to be loved. And all of that destroys your personal autonomy. Consumer Christianity is the worship of low commitment. We expect others to commit to us, to meet our expectations, but we don't even know what their expectations are for us. Or we'll send a quick text or an email to cancel the, the commitment we made to them to be present to them. And fourth, opinion over responsibility. I'm free to share my opinion with lots of people about what I don't like about them, but I've never served them. The most powerful illustration of this is uh, over at State Park Little League, there's a little sign. I don't, I don't have the quote quite right, but it's basically, um, do you want to complain? Dot, dot, dot. Have you volunteered yet? And our culture is the reverse of that. I'll complain, but I will not volunteer. I'll give you my opinion, but I will not be there to help when you need it. I mean, can you see why Mother Teresa's like, listen, I see the way you guys are living. I appreciate you want to come and help the poor among me, uh, but you should look at your own culture. It is a place of relational poverty. You need to go back to the West. And he did. He did not go and serve the materially poor. He stayed in the West because he believed she was Right, we are being discipled into loneliness and it's having a devastating effect. So, what then does community in the yoke of Jesus require of us? And in many ways, we're going to be three weeks in community because there's so much around here I, I want to speak to. Um, but I, I only want to say one thing for this morning, or I, I want to unpack one idea for this morning, which is that being in a community in the yoke of Jesus requires staying put with the same people. The 12 disciples spent three years with Jesus. They had lots of disagreements. They didn't understand a lot of things. There's even a moment in John 6 when Jesus says, okay, basically everyone's left me. Would you like to leave me too to the disciples? And yet they spent three years with Jesus. And I believe that community was a big part of what formed them into being the people who launched the only global, worldwide religious movement that has ever been launched. They were in community with Jesus. 
And I love when you, when you think about what they experienced and what their life was like. One of these apostles was, was killed very early on in the Christian story, James, whose brother John was in the disciples with James. They were called the sons of thunder. So they were people with high opinions and low commitment, in other words. Sons of thunder. So James dies, and then John processes his brother's death, his killing, with these group of disciples. And at the end of his life, sums up the Christian church, what we're called to be and do, like this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But that requires staying put with the same people. Love is not a text message. Love is not a kind note, even though those things can be very loving things to do. Love is, I've been around a long time and you've seen me when you've needed me every time. Not that I've done the right thing or said the right thing every time, because we can't do that as humans. We'll fail, but I'm there. And the longer someone is there and present to you in your life, the more you feel love and secure and the more you change. You become like Jesus. And when I, when I came here, you know, it was obvious to me there are lots of people who have been at this church for a long time. And when I asked around for advice, should I come to Liberty or, or not, a year ago, it was a year ago, I was processing a lot of those questions. And when I told some of the people, I, I asked, what do you think? Hey, there are people who have been at Liberty for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and a lot of them, not just a few. Some Christians gave me warnings about that. You know, that, that, could, be, that could be a bad thing. And I just, I just never agreed with that. Because my belief is, if you've been at a church for a long time, you've had to forgive so many things, you've lost count. You've had so many good reasons to leave the church, and you didn't. Now, I want to be clear. There are times to leave the church. I believe that. And I, I left my previous church, and I've counseled people to leave churches. There are times it is right to leave. But what makes love powerful is not dramatic action in an instance. It's continued presence, present attention to people over a long period of time, where you prove yourself as present to them in their time of need. And so a, a little writing that's been really near and dear to my heart over the last um, couple of years as I thought about, I want to be in the same place for a long time. It's the vow of staying put. It's from, a, um, from nuns in Mississippi, and this is their vow of staying put. We vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. When interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up preferences, and forgiving. The practices of love are not great conversations over coffee, although that's included. It's not singing great songs together, although that's included. The real practices of, of love are can you acknowledge your own offensive behavior? Can you give up your preferences and self-denial? 
And you, can you forgive others when they've harmed you? Those three things are why people stay at churches two to three years and then leave and go somewhere else. Because they get exposed as a sinner and people call them to, to new life and they leave instead. Or they have some strong preference that is not mentioned in the Bible and they want to find a church to live into that. Or someone else in the church has wounded them and they refuse to forgive and they live without forgiveness and so they have to go and find a different community to be a part of. And yet these are the very things in community that change you and make you like Jesus. If you want to easily, routinely, naturally do what Jesus would do if he were you, become really good at confessing your sins to other people. Become really good at self-denial and your own preferences. And be really good at forgiveness. And that's how you stay put with the same people for a long time. You can't do that without doing those three things. So what does that look like on the ground for us here at Liberty? How are we going to put this into practice? And uh, not quite ready yet, but in January, one of the, the really crucial things we'll do as a church is have small groups of people meeting in homes at, uh, meet from the church at meeting in homes. And I know some of you are already doing that um, now, which is great. And I don't know what we'll, what we'll call them, community groups, small groups, life groups. I, I don't care about names. I'm, I'm, this is just not my vibe. Um, but what I do care about is you having a community of people who are around you for a long time and are committed to you. And that's it. That's all groups should be about, in my opinion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you no matter what. I'm going to be here at this time every week or however often we meet, no matter what. And I'm going to be an encouraging presence in, in your life. So we'll have more to come on the details, but I'm just planting that seed in your head for January. You need, like Jesus had, 12 people surrounding him his entire life. You need the same thing. So that's what community in the yoke of Jesus requires, staying put with the same people for a long time. Third, then, how does that change us? How does community change us? And I want to say two things, and then I'll be in my seat. First is community changes us through exposure. If you're around the same people for a long time, you cannot hide. All that's broken in you comes out. And that's a hard thing to, to experience, to have happen, which is why a lot of my experience in the church is when someone's sin is exposed, they leave the community. I had a leader in Kansas City before, uh, before I came here who um, a number of us had begun basically lovingly confronting. He'd been an incredible servant. We, we all thought really highly of him, but it began acting in ways that were just outside the way of Jesus. And so a number of people had begun to um, just gently encourage him to, to consider an alternative way of life. And rather than listening to the people that he had freely dispensed advice to for, for years and good advice, instead of listening to us when we came to him with advice, he left the church. Which made me sad, not because he left, but because, well, obviously that made me sad, but here was a moment of discipleship for him. Like people loving him saying, hey, we're seeing this in you and this feels concerning. Can we talk about that? And his answer was no. He could not acknowledge his own sin. And I wish I could say that's a rare story in the church. It's just not. We who say Christ died for us sinners believe in it in the abstract. Yes, I'm a sinner. And then when it gets on the ground and it's specific, 
I sinned in this way. It's like, no way. I'm not a sinner. That would, I would never do that, right? That's, all of us do that, me included. And so community changes us through exposure because when your sin is exposed and you don't run somewhere else or you don't hide, you let the exposure come. You will not be the same person when it's finished. Whatever happens to you, you're going to be a radically different person. So community changes us through exposure. But second, community changes us through encouragement. All right, so what this does not mean is uh, if we find someone else in sin in the church, we should go and like read them the riot act. How dare you? Look what you've done, right? No, that's not what we should do. And what's become my own life like life verse for ministry, largely out of my own failure, but Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And for most of my life, I thought this was the verse you use to tell people there's certain words you're not allowed to say as Christians. And you can still kind of do that, but that's actually not what Paul is saying. Corrupting talk for Paul is not like naughty words. It's not speaking in a graceful way to other people. Corrupting talk is shaming or speaking to people in a way that doesn't respect their humanness. So I want my life and my words, all of them, to give grace. I know you might be thinking, well, what about speaking truth? We got to speak truth, yes. And I'll talk more about that next week, actually. But, but even when you speak truth, the intent is grace. Right? Even when Jesus is confronting sin, it's not just to get a load off his chest. It's not to make his voice heard. It's to draw people back to the Father. It's he has grace. He's come to save the world, not to condemn it. And so he speaks hard words, and we should speak hard words, but the intent is always grace. Let me just meditate on this question. What if for the rest of your life, the only words that left your mouth were aimed to connect someone deeper to the grace of God? That you never spoke another careless word that was meant to shame, harm, or condescend to someone else, to condemn them. And I know all that's impossible. I'm going to speak those words. I acknowledge that. But the goal of discipleship to Jesus is to do what he would do if he were us. And Jesus, with some rare exceptions, never speaks harsh words. And the only people he spoke harsh words to were religious people who spoke very harsh words and weighed down sinners with no hope of salvation. What if, for the rest of our lives... We only spoke words with the intent of grace. What if that was true of us at Liberty? The next year, we all were going to speak like billions of words, and all of them, the truth words, the, they all were with the intent of grace. What would this place be like? I can tell you one thing, we'd all change and look a lot more like Jesus. We'd all more easily, naturally, routinely do what Jesus would do if he were us. And Jesus modeled this, right? So Matthew 10, you have the... the the disciples and Jesus, there's a community happening. And when Jesus is killed on the cross, that community was fractured in really powerful ways. Judas betrays Jesus and goes and commits suicide. So he's out of the community. But Peter, one of its leaders, denies Jesus three times. 
And there wasn't even really a cost to it. It's not like he was being threatened in any meaningful way. He just denied Jesus three times. And so now the community is fractured. So what's going to happen? Well, we read what Jesus does with Peter. The end of John's gospel. And Peter's out fishing. And they see someone cooking breakfast on the beach. Which, I mean, just first, act of grace and gentleness, right? Matthew 11, the easy yoke, that's our series. Jesus says, come to me, all you who uh, are heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That is true of someone who cooks breakfast for you. And not just that, breakfast on the beach. All right, apparently like, like a third of us in this are like, that sounds good. The rest of you... I don't know what kind of life you're living. I'll eat breakfast on the beach from Jesus easily. That's what he does, right? So Peter's denied him. Jesus has a charcoal fire for breakfast. He gathers his disciples around him. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know what the these are. The fish, the disciples, and it doesn't matter for today. Jesus' essential question to Peter was, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know that I love you, Lord. Jesus asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? I've heard a a good lawyer does not ask a question without knowing the answer to it. And I think that's true of Jesus here. Jesus is not asking Peter because he's not sure if Peter loves him. So the very question is is an act of grace. Hey, Peter, we both know you, you failed. But we also both know you love me. And so let's go back there. Let's go back to that place. And so he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And everyone now around the fire knows what's happening. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus has asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. Jesus is recalling that, fe- that failure of Peter without shaming him, without making him relive it without speaking in anger to him, but gently bringing Peter back into faithfulness. Peter says a third time, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus reinstates Peter. He he gives him a call to ministry, but he does more than that. He looks at Peter and he says, you know, Peter, you you failed. You you, you denied me, right? We've covered that ground, but in the future... You're going to die a courageous, brave man on my behalf. And he speaks for Peter, his own future, what's ahead for him. An incredible act of grace. I mean, what a a scene. Peter is exposed. And Jesus gently encourages him back into faith, into grace. That changes you. Watching that happen to other people changes you. Having that happen to you changes you. And that's why this should be the guiding vision for this community. To be a place where this is the safest place for you to be exposed as a sinner. Because we're going to love you back into the grace of God, whatever that sin is. The church should be the safest place not to hide. And often it's the place where we hide the most. Because we're afraid to be Exposed, but imagine a community instead where every community or where every word that was spoken, the intent is grace. To bring someone else closer to the heart of God. That community would change us. That community is supposed to be 
us. And so, friends, may we make it true of us. And the only way it's true, the only way it can become true, is to look to the cross. Because two things happen at the cross. You and I are exposed as sinners, right? Like our life, our lifestyle killed Jesus. That's the facts of our life. That's the gospel. You are exposed as a sinner anytime you look at the cross. And yet at the same time, there's Jesus' grace right back towards us, right? This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. It's exposure right by encouragement and grace. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.